the Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast hosted by me, Bethel Duran. Thank you so much for everybody that's participating with us, leaving a review, rating it, sharing it on your social media. I love interacting with everybody, especially when you bring in Bill Plaschke and Dylan Hernandez and the wound for the Dodger fans is still fresh. But that's what we like, and that's what the beauty of what this podcast is about. From the first one that we did to what we're doing today, we are evolving with you. We want to give the listener, the reader, the fan, the ability to grow with us. Going back and listening and talking with friends and, and people on social media, what I realize is that I'm going right away and introducing you guys to the best of the best. The LA Times has a murderer's row of writers on their staff. And so when we sit down and we collaborate, it's like, okay, who do we want to bring in this week? We're going to go and bring everybody on staff. Eventually, we're going to talk to them. We're going to introduce them to you. And today's guest, Nathan Fenno, is different. What is your actual title? Sports Enterprise Reporter. See, the reason I wanted you to say it is because I would have called you enterprising, <laughs> but it's not, right? Enter. Yeah, and Enter- if, you're, if you're not in the business, you'll get kind of a glossy look when you uh, when you say that. So yeah, you, we have awesome beat writers at the paper. We have awesome columnists. And what I do is longer stories, in-depth stories, investigative stuff. I dig into criminal records and court records and public records, all that kind of thing. I'm not writing about who won or lost last night. I'm writing about, you know, somebody gets arrested or in-depth story on, you know, somebody with CTE or that kind of thing. So you get to find a story that somebody on the Metro desk, the news people would say, eh, here, let me give you a couple hundred words. You see these stories and you're like, wait a minute, there's more to it. Let me dig, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a uh, maybe an old adage, but one of the best places to find stories is the brief section. Somebody just writes a few paragraphs and you say, wait a minute, there's something else there. So my best stories have come from that area. Yeah, like a beat writer, we were talking with them at the World Series. As soon as the last out is made, they got a father story within two minutes. And it's, as they would say, it's good writing, but it's not their best because it's a different type of pressure. You, how long do you get for a story? You know, it totally depends. Uh, I just finished a story this afternoon and maybe it'll go in in the next day or two. So that's a quicker turnaround. Other times, like the story about Kevin Ellison that we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, that was a turnaround in a week. Other times I'll spend a whole summer working on something with shorter assignments to break up the time in the middle of it. So it's all over the map. It's all over the map. How long have you been at the LA Times? Oh, golly, four and a half years now. Came out here from Washington, D.C. So you're from where? I'm from Seattle, actually. Seattle. Yeah, so I get nostalgic when it rains, like the two days a year it rains out here yeah, in LA. Yeah, I don't like that. Because <laughs> you can't drive in the rain in LA. It's scary. It no, is. Nobody knows how to drive in the rain down here. <laughs> so how long have you been in the business? Uh, 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. So you've seen some pretty cool and interesting things in this time. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been an interesting journey. And even going really from when I started in the business, I was 19 years old working for a paper in the Seattle suburbs. And I was a huge sports fan. And really all I wanted to do was be a Major League Baseball beat writer, of all things. And that eventually shifted over the years. You start to see how the sausage is made. You grow up a little bit. And I wasn't so much of a fan anymore, but I was just fascinated on the stories kind of behind the games, the stories away from the fields. You know, what happens when these women and men that we watch, what happens when things don't go right in their lives? It might be something that happened on the field or mainly with the stories I write, something that doesn't go right off the field. How do they respond to that? How do their families respond to that when life kind of falls apart? So that's in the last several years, it's kind of become more or less what I've focused on, uh, those kinds of stories. And it's an area that totally fascinates me. The reason we get into sports 
is because there's always happy news. I like it. I like looking at the front page of sports page and say, hey, you know what? Somebody won. It's not like the front page of the news or the front page of business or where it's, everything's negative. In sports, usually there's something positive there on the front page. But what I like when I read you is that you make me think. And one story that you recently worked on was about Lorenzen Wright. Yeah. And, and for folks who might not remember the name or it sounds vaguely familiar, he was a lottery pick by the Clippers. Golly, back in uh, 96, 97, something like that. I think the number seven pick in the draft, a big man out of Memphis. And he was a big deal. No pun intended. But fast forward to 2010 and uh, his body was found in a field in Memphis and it was uh, shrunk down to 57 pounds and riddled with bullet holes and the only evidence was this mysterious like 10 second 911 call he made where he utters a profanity and you hear like 12 gunshots and then nothing. And uh, the murder had gone unsolved for golly, maybe uh, seven years. All of a sudden last December over in uh, Riverside County, a task force looking for fugitives arrested his ex-wife and she was charged with orchestrating his murder in exchange for a life insurance policy. Absolutely insane stuff. And how did you get on this story? You know, I've been following this story since my days in D.C. It was just one of those things that before they, the cops had solved it, it was just fascinating. I mean, what everybody seemed to love this guy. He had a great personality. Yeah. He had success uh, on and off the court. He made like $55 million. He was a hero in Memphis. And then he was gunned down on a field in the middle of the night, and nobody knew what happened. There was just something that didn't add up. And after his ex-wife was arrested, I had a chance to finally dig into it this year, and it was absolutely fascinating. Did you dig into it because it had the L.A. connection as a former Clipper or just because you wanted to? Well, it's really my, and please understand this the right way, it's my favorite kind of story, not because of the tragedy involved, but because it takes, there's an L.A. connection, but it has a national kind of appeal. It's more than just something that's just of interest to our folks here in our uh, fair little humble city. <laughs> well, that's why when it happened, I remember hearing the news, like, whoa, that guy used to be a Clipper. Yeah. And was like, whatever happened to him, right? You're, okay. And then I read your story and I mean, I'm touching my head right now, mind blown. I'm reading this. There's so many layers to it. I can't even imagine the stuff that you weren't able to get into the story that you found. That's why I bring up, did you ever write a book? Because like, it read like a Hollywood script. I mean, yeah. it's a tragic story, but the murder, crime, all that other stuff. Well, it's that old cliche that truth is really stranger than fiction. I mean, the twists and the turns in that whole just horribly sad saga, you just can't make it up. You just can't. And like you said, I mean, the stuff that was left out of there that you know, I couldn't quite run down or confirm or that might come out when the trial happens next year for the ex-wife, I'm sure we'll only get crazier. How many days is that run of the times? There's a bunch of different series to it, right? So no, it was just one part. Oh, it was just one part? Yeah. Oh, because it took me a while to read it. It was a long yeah, story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. I, I'm be, I read it online, so I thought I was reading multiple versions of it. <laughs> like, I no. thought it was like a three-day piece or something like no. that because it was like, how many words did you write? It's probably about 3,000, which is not as long as a magazine piece, yeah. but that's a pretty long piece for a newspaper. And we have a lot of great editors here at the yeah. Times, and they are great at wanting to help shape and mold those stories and to be the best they can be. And okay. so, you know, that whole process can take a while as well. And it's, it's great because you end up with a better product because of it. But that's a big part of the kind of job that I do as well is these stories aren't just green lighted and you just pop it out the next day. There's a lot of work by a lot of different people that goes into them. Because now in 2018, if it's over 400 words, we're not reading it anymore. Well, you know, one of the fascinating things and our sports editor, Angela Rodriguez and myself have talked about this a lot was uh, looking back at the Lorenzo Wright story, which was a longer piece. Most of our traffic came from mobile devices and it had some of the highest engaged time of any story the paper has done this year which 
is encouraging because people want good stories and they want interesting stories. And the medium isn't as important. You know, if it's a compelling story, you're going to keep scrolling through it on your phone, yeah. or your iPad or whatever. I was one of those where I'm reading this and I'm like, wow. Okay. And I would always tell myself, I need to sit down and like block everything else out because I went back and read it the second time and there were things I missed the first time mm -hmm. because I was just glancing through it. And like we've said, if it's good quality writing, the sports fan is going to engage with it because the storytelling is why we get into sports, why we love it. There's so many backstories of people. That's why we're doing this podcast, Arrive Early, Leave Late, because every single writer has a story. So when you're working on a piece about Lorenzen Wright, murdered by his ex-wife who was accused of it, what do you find out about a story like that that just went unsolved for so many years? You know, it becomes kind of, uh, at least the way I approach it, you become obsessed with it. I work at home a lot. And so, you know, your wife has dinner ready or something like that. And you uh, might put in a couple hours and dinner gets cold and you just become fixated on it. You know, whether you're digging through documents or trying to look up a phone number for a source or having a long conversation just to nail down a particular detail, you become fixated on finding out as much as you absolutely can about it. And inevitably, you're going to be a little disappointed because a story like that, legal proceedings are playing out. There's a lot that you can't find out. There's a lot that you aren't going to know that doesn't stop you from trying though and that's why if you have an opportunity even if you don't have an opportunity just go google nathan fenno it's on the la times website of the murder of Lorenzen Wright, and there's much more to it it sounds like you're gonna follow the trial yeah that's our hope it's scheduled to happen at some point next year in memphis in the in the meantime the ex-wife and one of the alleged accomplices are in jail and i believe they're being held on 10 15 million dollars bail wow. so it's as big a deal as this situation was in L.A. It's a much, much bigger deal in Memphis where he was just an icon in that town. I feel like we should do a special podcast just on that trial. And oh, I think we'll be back doing it. Yeah, it's just in this day and age of storytelling, anything that we can do to enhance something like that, it'd be very interesting. Now, moving forward, a sad story at USC, a player that I knew a little bit covering him while he was with the Trojans and remember reading about him when he was in high school at Redondo High. Kevin Ellison, 31 years old, and he was hit by a car on the freeway as he was walking shirtless. He actually had a USC sweatshirt on, which there's a lot of things about this story that, you know, just to, then I, maybe taking a step back, the nature of my job, I deal with a lot of tough stuff. A lot of murders, suicides. You're not generally encountering people when they're on a winning streak in life, so to speak. So if but, Fendo's uh, coming to talk to you, there's something wrong. <laughs> That's what uh, one of my bosses uh, jokes with me about. But, you know, you you want to be able to not discard your humanity when you're approaching this stuff. And I want it to impact me. And I want it to affect me. And I want it to hurt. There was something about this one, though, that really, that really got me. And honestly, while writing it, there were times when I had to stop because I was crying so much. I mean, when you have this idea of this kid who had everything going for him, who was the the guy at USC that the other players really looked up to and wanted to be like. He might not have been the fastest guy or the guy who ticked all the charts at the combine for the NFL draft or that kind of thing, but he was the hardest worker. He was the one who would uh, give a teammate a ride home from a party if they'd had too much to drink. He was the one who was going to be a success. He got an economics degree, came from a really good family. I think he graduated early, one of those guys. He graduated early from high school. Yep. And, I mean, the whole deal. And uh, he wasn't ever a kid that you would look at and say, yeah, if something happens with him, I would not be surprised. You know, that kind of thing. And he had teammates that were like that. Yeah. I remember being around those teams. And Ellison was the guy. He was never a cliche guy. He was a guy that would give you a perspective. He was a leader. That's how I would describe him on those teams. Yeah. And he was... 
as well a guy who was very close to his family. Even after he went on to a professional career, a, a brief one, his family remained close. Both of his brothers played college football. One of his brothers played for the Buffalo Bills. And he was never the kind of guy who let that success or his family's success go to his head. As Rocky Sito, a former USC assistant coach, said, Kevin Ellison was the favorite guy he ever coached, college or professional. And he said Kevin Ellison was the kind of guy he wanted his daughter to marry. And it wasn't just, the, you know, I guess that could be a little cliche, but Rocky really meant that. I mean, that was something he had said with all his heart. So I guess that's a little context for why this one seemed to hurt a little bit more. I didn't know Kevin at all. I wish I had. But just to write it, it was just gut-wrenching to talk to his family and to, to sort through what happened and just the hellish journey they were on with him. Yeah, I read your story. And when I saw that he died, I was like, damn. I, I always wondered what happened to him because I knew he played in the NFL with the Chargers. Then he got busted for having a bunch of, I think, Vicodin in his car. Yeah, and he didn't have a prescription for it. Just it just didn't seem like him. And then I didn't hear much about him the rest. Then the next thing I hear about him, he's dead. I'm like, what happened? Yeah. Maybe to provide a little context for folks, this is back on October 4th. It seems like a long time ago already. But almost toward midnight, he was just wandering on the 5 freeway over in the valley. And the CHP, California Highway Patrol, started getting calls about this guy in a USC sweatshirt or a red sweatshirt, they said. They later found out it was USC, just wandering in and out of traffic. Finally, somebody just popped him, and he was declared dead about a half hour later. But he didn't have any idea or anything on him, and it wasn't until almost a day later that the coroner was able to identify him through his fingerprints and reach out to his family. And both his brothers were actually about to coach a high school football game down in Redondo Beach when they see their sister and their mom walking onto the field, they knew their brother had been missing. And just from the expressions and how unusual it was, they knew that he wasn't coming back. But just being the kind of guys there, I went on to coach the game. Wow. Um, to hear you say it and see the expression in your face, too. Yeah. Like, this one seems like it affected you. It, it really did. And uh, Did you know him at all? No, no. I, I, I never met him. I wish I had. I guess that's the thing about writing some of these stories that are tough. You end up with a lot of people that you say, I, I wish I would have known that person. It seems like, you know, before they encountered their hard times, they were really a really neat woman or a really neat guy. A lot of these guys, particularly football players, kind of drop off the map or can drop off the map after their careers. And, you know, we remember the highlights, the guys running on the field, delivering the big hits. And we forget about this other side of these families in a lot of cases like Kevin Ellison's that have to deal with the mess afterward. And what happens when a 31-year-old who should be in the prime of his life is dealing with just horrific mental illness to just throwing everything off the rails. He had like a tattoo. They identified him with that. Yeah, he had a tattoo on one of his arms that said, be the best. And that everybody I talked to really epitomized his approach. You know, again, even if he wasn't the fastest guy or something like that, he was going to study the most film. He was going to uh, go back for an extra uh, workout session in the weight room after everybody had left. Uh, he was going to work his tail off to be the best. But what happened after the NFL? Well, so he'd been drafted by the San Diego Chargers back in the 2009 draft, I believe. Played a bunch of games for him. Things seemed to be going okay. He hurt one of his knees again, and that had been a problem at USC where he had some knee injuries. And uh, his brother Chris had told me that he didn't want the team to know about it. And we all know how that is. You know, guys want to keep their injuries on the uh, down low, especially young guys uh, trying to make a career for themselves. And Chris said that's where he ended up getting some Vicodin on the street. Didn't have a prescription for it just to help deal with the injury. And then he got busted for that by the cops during just a routine traffic stop. So that was kind of the first 
maybe sign that everything wasn't okay. He was cut by the Chargers, cut by the Seahawks, ended up with an Arena League team in Spokane, Washington. Pretty big fall for a guy who was playing at USC. If you fast forward the summer of 2012, he tries to light his bed on fire at the place he's staying in Spokane. And he says he's God, he's Jesus, that Jesus will protect everybody from the fire because that he is Jesus. He refused to come out of his room for a while. Eventually, he jumped out a third-story window, and thankfully, nobody was hurt. He was charged with federal counts of arson and was eventually able to get some uh, professional help and be institutionalized. And he was diagnosed as a bipolar and schizophrenic at that point in time. And it really caught his family off guard. They didn't see this coming. But I don't think most families would say, oh, yeah, my loved one is definitely struggling with a serious mental illness out of the blue. That's not how our minds work. Diagnosed bipolar schizophrenic. This was the guy who at USC, you're pulling for him. They were people wearing that number four jersey. The guy who was going to the NFL. He wasn't, like I said, the most touted one, but he was that grinder, the blue collar guy that was going to get the job done for you. Lights his apartment on fire. So you said institutionalized. Yeah. Instead of it quickly became clear after he was taken into custody that he was dealing with some serious mental issues. And so his family and attorneys were able to get him into a mental hospital. And that's where he was. I mean, his mom, I didn't put this in the story, but his mom had referred to uh, him as just being almost zombie-like. He was so medicated at that point in time. He was living in the back house of, well, of yeah, his so, mom's house, right? Yeah. So after uh, after this uh, legal issue is taken care of, he moved into a studio apartment behind his mom's house. And his dad lived there as well until he passed away a couple of years ago. But yeah, here a guy is who... Uh, you know, just a couple of years before was playing in the NFL, living the dream. And now he's living in an apartment behind his mom's house. He started bouncing from job to job. I mean, just he would work hard and he just couldn't hold one down. I mean, you know, not the sort of types of jobs that he had envisioned when he was coming out of the USC with an economics degree. But yeah, he would work with kids or older folks, things like that. But he didn't want to drive. He didn't feel like he could concentrate long enough to be able to do that as some of his issues became more serious. So he took public transit. He had a bus pass that he uh, got around with. And in his spare time, he spent a lot of time walking and roaming around the neighborhood, sometimes with his sister. He'd walk miles and miles to the point where he literally wore through the soles of a pair of shoes. He walked so much. But it seemed to be a way to kind of calm him down inside and find a little peace, even just for a few minutes. He was wearing out his shoes. It's crazy to think of wearing all the way through soles and a pair of shoes. You're walking so much. But, you know, he went on and off of medication, and he didn't like how it made him feel. And that's, I've reported quite a bit in the last year or two on mental health issues among former professional athletes. And that's a common thing you'll hear is folks dealing with these serious issues when they get on their medicine. It makes them feel weird. And in Kevin's case, you know, he gained weight. He was lethargic. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't really work for more than four hours in a day, which, you know, that's tough to hold down a full-time job when you're not able to work more than four hours. So there was a quote, and I have the story up in front of me, that he had told his mom that when he took the medicine, the hardest thing, even even with the medicine, the hardest thing he's ever had to do is to control his mind, that she has no idea how difficult that is for him to do. And this is a guy, again, who played college football for USC, who played in the NFL, but simply controlling his mind and trying to stay on the right track is the hardest thing he's ever had to do. CTE is a big topic now, mm-hmm. especially amongst former football players. What's the family going to do? The family has donated his brain to be researched by the folks at Boston University who uh, have done a lot of the work in studying CTE. 
And uh, for folks who might have heard that before, it's an acronym for very long, chronic, traumatic encephalopathy. If I can say that right, I probably didn't say that right. Close enough. (laughs) Close enough. Kind of a neurodegenerative disease that a lot of former NFL players have been diagnosed with. It's still being studied a lot. We're still learning a lot about it. But yeah, so his brain is going to be examined for it. You can only definitively diagnose it in folks after they're dead by the nature of the tests they have to do on the brain. So it'll probably be several months before we'll get the results back from that. When you talked to the family, you said the mom described him as a zombie. She had felt like he was over-medicated after the arson incident up in Spokane. He had moments and flashes where he was just normal Kevin after he got settled back here and the years he was living back here. But, you know, he struggled with a lot of different kinds of things. And they could tell when he would kind of be going back into the darkness, so to speak, and where he would be having another hard so they time. they could of- see it. Yeah, you know, he would start to fidget. His eyes would wander. He would start to talk to the sky more. He would become fixated on thinking his jaw was clicking. He would hear voices. He wouldn't be able to sleep. And this happened a lot. Reading your story and hearing what his family had to say, like his brothers, who were a big influence for him, like family grew up in Inglewood. They went to Redondo High. I think the sister's an attorney. Sister's a real estate agent. Oh, real estate agent. Brother's an attorney. attorney. What I got from that story was it was a tight-knit family. It wasn't like a family where it's, hey, he's our football player, our meal ticket. Let's all use him for something like so many other stories have been about. He has to keep on playing. Like They wanted to help. They got him help, yet he couldn't help himself. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I wasn't able to put in the story, uh, there wasn't space for it, but I'd asked his sister, Camille, about the sacrifice that the family had made to provide for him financially. Because, you know, there were, he would go long stretches without being able to work or obviously not working full-time like we'd talked about. And everybody pitched in with uh, Camille walking him around or people pitching with money or rides or whatever. And the attitude just astonished me because, golly, this must have been such a sacrifice for you. You, know, you all have your stuff you'd want to do with your time and money. And she was like, it wasn't a sacrifice at all. It was a privilege to serve him in that way. And it's just like, holy mackerel. I mean, you almost started bawling right over uh, over the phone at that point in time. I mean, who who has that kind of attitude in our society these days that, um, you know, to be able to put somebody else in their needs. He wasn't a burden to them. No, it was a privilege to them to be able to serve him in that way. And I mean, you know, what a powerful thing to say about that family and the unity they, they clearly have and the love they have for each other. He was living in Inglewood, correct? Yeah. Didn't drive. No. Would follow rides. How did he end up in the valley? Nobody knows. And uh, that's one of the things that's probably never going to be known. But uh, what happened on October uh, 2nd, so two days before he passed, he had stopped taking his medicine for quite some time, several weeks. And his family was trying to get him to go to uh, a hospital for a 72-hour psychiatric hold where they could get him on his meds again, get him stabilized, get him back in the swing of things. And they'd been through this routine before. This is not their first rodeo, unfortunately. But he didn't respond well and kind of freaked out and ran away. And he told the neighbor that people were trying to kill him as he ran away. And the family, that was the last they ever saw of him. The family didn't have any uh, relatives up in the valley. Um, Nobody. Nobody. He didn't have friends or things like that up in the valley. There wasn't a reason they know of for him to be up there. And for folks who might not be familiar with LA geography, Inglewood to the Valley is not a quick trip. 30 miles, maybe? Yeah, something like that. And so he somehow used public transit to get up there. And, you know, their best... Why? Their best guess (laughs) is, you know, one of the the 
calls from the California Highway Patrol scanner when he was wandering on the freeway was that he was waving his arms around. And his brother Chris had theorized that he thought that all the lights from the oncoming cars were police and that he was trying to surrender to them. Since his arrest for the Vicodin pills, he just had a huge fear of the police. And as his illness progressed, it only became worse, apparently. So that was at least what Chris thought, is he was somehow, he was disoriented. He was trying to get home. He thought these cars were police. He was trying to surrender. He was trying to put his arms up. Clearly, he had no idea he was in the middle of a, one of the busiest freeways in the country in the final minutes of his life. Fascinating stuff you just talked about right now. How hard was it for you to write this? Because as a reporter, as a journalist, you learn and you build those calluses where you keep the distance and you, you don't become the story. But this one, just hearing you talk, and this is the first time we ever met, I can't even imagine you going through notes, interviewing the entire family, and then trying to piece this together. You did a great job with it. Well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, it's really, this is very sincere, but it's really a privilege to be able to tell a story of a somebody like Kevin. And it's I, I view it as a huge responsibility. This will be the longest story probably ever written about him in the LA Times. Again, I mean, we'll continue to follow up as events dictate, but uh, you certainly feel the weight of that. You want to do right by him and be true to what happened and be and do right by the family and not try to sugarcoat the journey they went through. And not only the journey they went through, but the journey so many other families who have a loved one struggling with mental health issues have to deal with. There's a lot of weight associated with that. And it's something that keeps me up at night when I write these kind of stories. This could have easily just been an obituary blurb, a couple of paragraphs, former UFC football player, where it would have started with former player busted with Vicodin pills, arson in Spokane, Washington, survived by his family. Why did you write this long form piece about him? The answer isn't actually one of the words used, why? And I'm insanely curious. I always want to know why. When something like this happens, you know, how did Kevin Ellison end up on the five freeway in the middle of the valley at 11 p.m. wandering around in a USC sweatshirt? What happened? I've written, unfortunately enough, about former professional football players dealing with these mental health problems that I had a suspicion about what happened. I had an idea of what might have happened. I wish that wasn't the case, but uh, it turned out to be true. But I think these situations deserve more than just a quick cut and dry obituary and then move on to the next thing. You know, if we're going to celebrate the games and write about who won or lost, we need to be able to tell unflinching kinds of stories about what happens off the field. And they might not be pleasant. They might not be the kind of thing that you uh, feel great after reading, but I'm thankful for a section such as ours that we value that kind of thing and we want to tell the whole story. Well, you did a great job with it. Nathan Fenno, um, just Google it. Kevin Ellison, USC, written by Nathan Fenno. And take the time, just sit and read that story. And hopefully this podcast gave some perspective, not just to the family, but to people who are dealing with mental issues amongst their own family. And yeah, um, Nathan, you did a great job with it. Thanks for your time today. Thanks. And that's what we try to do here at Arrive Early, Leave Late. Take you behind the scenes, take you behind the story. And as uh, Nathan said, why? We love sports, but the stories are always there for us. Thanks for listening to another edition of Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast produced by Dave Wine, engineered by Mike Heflin, Sports editor of the LA Times is Angel Rodriguez. Thanks to everybody for listening to Arrive Early, Leave Late, hosted by Beth Duran, an LA Times Studios production.